Listen to the word of God. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And in your pew Bibles, it's found on page 939. Page 939. Listen as we hear the inspired, infallible, authoritative, and life-giving word of the Lord. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you who also are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. The last week or two, we've had a lot of storms, a lot of wind, and I wonder how many of you, at least at some time, lost electrical power? Any of you? All right, just a few. All right. And you know, sometimes your sump pump goes out and the flooding and so forth. Uh, I can remember a time one winter when the power went out for five days in the middle of the winter. This is before our sons decided to gift us with a generator, and our only heat was a little wood stove in the family room there, and uh, it was a cold five days, and we were glad to get the power back on. I'd like you to imagine that you are in a modern skyscraper building, the one, you know, the windows don't open, everything is done through artificial lighting and so forth, and the power goes out in the building. And all of a sudden, nothing works. 
There's no internet. There's no heat. There's no air conditioning. Uh, there's darkness. And you're saying, what do we do? Let's face it. When the power goes out, you're in trouble. And in a sense, for all of us outside of Christ, the power has gone out. And we are in trouble with God outside of Christ. But the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel, is that the gospel is God's power for us in such times. It is his divine power to bring light and to bring life. The gospel has power to transform and renew even the worst of sinners. The power of the gospel can transform all people, all ethnic groups. It can penetrate all barriers. Last Sunday, if you're with us, we did an overview of the letter of Paul's to Romans. And we saw that the gospel is what? It is good news for sinners and for saints. The gospel, it's good news of Jesus Christ to sinners and saints, no matter how many times we hear it. And in this section I just read in verses 1 to 17, the word gospel is found five or six times. Paul is saying, I'm writing to you about this good news. And each time, it speaks either directly or implicitly about the power of God in the gospel. I wonder how many of you this morning feel kind of powerless, kind of weak. Maybe it's a rough night. Maybe it's been a rough week. Maybe it's been a rough year. And you're saying, I don't have a lot of power in me. And God says, my message to you is dynamite. It's powerful. It can convict and transform any sinner, and it can break through any kinds of barriers and addictions and idolatries, and it can break through prejudices and resistance. Anybody want that kind of power in your life? I think, yes. Lord, I need that power from you. In this section of Scripture, we're going to see two major demonstrations of the power of God in the gospel. The first is that God's good news has the power to rescue and to transform sinners. God's good news has the power to rescue. Imagine you're drowning and you need to be rescued and to be transformed. God doesn't just save you from hell so you can go to heaven. God's power in the gospel has the power to change you, to transform you, to make you into something that you were created to be. And we'll see that in verses 1 to 15. And then secondly, we're going to look at how God's good news has the power to credit us with Christ's righteousness. We're going to put on our accounting caps there. I've never taken an accounting course in my life, but I've tried to balance a checkbook. Some of you know what a checkbook is. Others not. But you know if your account is negative or positive, and we're going to talk about how the gospel has the power so that God accounts us. He credits your spiritual account before him with Christ's righteousness in verses 16 and 17. So let's look at the first point, that God's good news has the power to rescue and transform 
sinners. And I want to show you quickly five demonstrations of that power. We're going to move quickly here, but five ways in which the gospel is good news because it's the power of God to rescue and transform sinners. First, the gospel has the power to set you free. Verses 1 and verses 5. I'd like you to imagine that in that power outage in a building that you're in, you just happen to be in an elevator at that time. And this building, the backup generator for some reason isn't working. And you're between floors and you're in an elevator, you're stuck between floors, the doors won't open and there's no light and you're saying, help. And you, you, there's a little telephone you're supposed to use and that doesn't work either. And you're wondering, does anyone even know I'm here stuck in this elevator without light? Without the doors opening, how long will I be here? You're imprisoned, in a sense, in a small elevator. And you're just saying, Lord, would you please put the power back on so I can get to my floor and the doors can open and I can escape? Well, that's a picture of what the gospel of Jesus Christ does. It doesn't set us free from elevators, but it rescues us from our sin from our guilt, from our shame. A lot of us carry a lot of shame because of what we've done in our life. The gospel has the power to set us free from those things. The gospel has the power to rescue us from our addictions and idolatries. And perhaps many of us here today have struggled and we've gained some victory and then we go back and we're we feel like there's these besetting sins in our life that we just can't get over. Brothers and sisters, the good news is that the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't just set us free from the power of hell. It does that. But it has the power to rescue us from everything that would hold us back from knowing, enjoying, and loving God. In verses 1 and 5, Paul says that he was set apart. He was separated to the gospel of God as an apostle, as a messenger of good news. And you say, well, yeah, I know that. But think about his background. We know in the book of Acts that Paul was a persecutor of the church. He was seeking to put Christians in jail, okay? But I, Paul was, a, was imprisoned by something greater. Paul was trapped in his own self-righteousness. Paul was the Pharisee of the Pharisee. Paul kept the law to a T. Paul said, I am righteous. And he was caught. We might not think about that, but that's an addiction too, to be trapped in a view of your own self-righteousness and lose sight of grace. You know, sometimes in the church, after being here for years and decades, we can get that disease as well. We start to think of ourselves as self-righteous, as if we did it and not God doing it for us. But God, in the power of the gospel, rescued Paul from that entrapment, and he made him a zealous messenger of this good news. The gospel freed Paul from being trapped, not in an elevator, but in his own self-righteousness. 
Let me give you an example of what that would be today. Today, it would be like hearing the testimony of someone who is one of the leaders of Hamas becoming a believer in Jesus Christ and then having a ministry like Billy Graham. And you say, well, that's, that's a stretch. Well, you can read the book, Son of Hamas, by Mossab Hassan Yusuf. He was the son of one of the leaders, founders of Hamas, and he came to know Jesus, and turned, his life was turned around by the gospel. And so the good news, wherever you are this morning, the good news has the power to rescue you and to set your loved ones free. We are praying in the prayer meeting, Lord, for our adult children who don't know you. We're praying for decades. You're praying for friends and so forth. The gospel has the power to set anyone and everyone free. The Lord's hand is not short to save. Do you believe that and are you praying that way? Hallelujah. Second demonstration of God's power in the gospel is that the gospel is grounded in the power of God's redemptive history. The gospel is grounded in the power of God's redemptive history. My undergraduate was in civil engineering, and I like bridges and buildings and so forth. And one of the obvious things, if you're going to build a massive dam or a bridge or a skyscraper, is you have to root that building, that structure, in bedrock. The foundation has to go deep if you're going to build high and strong and tall. Well, brothers and sisters, in the same way, the good news of Jesus Christ solidly rests on God's revelation for the previous 2,000 years. When you read from Genesis to Malachi, when you read 2,000 years of God's redemptive history, how he saved people way back then up to the time of Jesus, all of that is the foundation. That is the bedrock that the good news of the gospel is built on. And this assures us that the gospel is not something that the apostles said, hey, you know, people need some good news. Let's, let's think of something, some health, self-help kind of things. No, it's built on 2,000 years of miracles and revelations and the truth that God showed to Noah and to Abraham and to Moses and David and the prophets. Your faith in the Lord your belief that the gospel has power is not something we came up with recently at Trinity. It's resting on the bedrock of God's redemptive history from creation, the fall, the promises, and then the fulfillment in Christ, and it will be continued until Christ comes back from the dead. Let me give you an example of why this is different than any other religion. If you take, and I, I speak respectfully, but if you take the message of the Quran or the Book of Mormon or something like that, they really manufacture it separately, sort of as it had no historical roots. It doesn't go back the way the gospel is rooted in 2,000 years of redemptive history. If you have a study Bible, there's all these references thousands of references that take you back and say, this is where it's built upon. And so that means for you that it's like buying a generator to give you power, and this wasn't just cooked up by three guys in the, the lab in high school. This has a solid backing to it, okay? And you can trust 
that what the gospel says is true because God has been at work with revelations, with prophecies, promises, with miracles for 2,000 years to the time you get to Christ and to Paul and this message in Romans chapter 1. More than that, Paul tells us that Jesus was both the son of David and the son of God. He says, think about who Jesus is. He has these historical roots. He goes back beyond, but he goes back to David. David is promised there's going to be a descendant who's going to sit on the throne forever. And so for a thousand years, the Jews are looking for this fulfillment. And it says Jesus is that. He's the long-awaited and promised Messiah. And he's not only the Messiah, but he's the Son of God. And how do we know that? It says he's declared what? With power to be the Son of God. How? By his resurrection from the dead. So my friends, resurrection is not just something we celebrate at Easter time. The resurrection tells us that what we believe in the gospel and the fact that it has power to rescue and transform is based on the fact that Jesus Christ is a long-awaited Messiah, the son of David, and that he is uniquely set apart as the son of God shown by his resurrection from the dead. My friends, is there any other political or religious or military leader who was once dead and was raised from the dead and is alive forevermore? No, it's only Jesus. That's why we stand upon the good news of the gospel and the power there. It was grounded in God's redemptive history, verified in God's raising of Jesus from the dead. Thirdly, the gospel has power to bring about your obedience of faith. The gospel has the power to bring about the obedience of faith in you. Verse 5, he talks about the obedience of faith. Let's think about power going out. And let's think about if you don't have a backup generator. When the power goes out, your appliances don't work. And most interestingly, you go into a bedroom and you, what do you do? You hit the switch and nothing happens, right? You're so used to it. You hit the switch, power light comes on. And you go to plug something in, oh, yeah, oh. The microwave doesn't work, refrigerator doesn't work, washer doesn't work, dryer doesn't work. Nothing works without an external power. They all depend on a power outside of themselves. And the same is true for us. You and I, as sinners, have no power in ourselves to obey God's law. We have no ability in ourselves to trust God's word and live lives that are pleasing to him. Oh, we try. People try. But in ourselves, we are bankrupt and we are powerless. But the gospel has the power to bring about the, the phrase is, the obedience of faith in us. The obedience of faith. And what that means is that faith in Jesus Christ, if it is true faith, will always bring about an obedience to Christ as its outcome, okay? True faith in Christ, for all he is for us, will always bring about an obedience to Christ as its outcome. But let me ask you this. What's the only way a stubborn, self-centered heart can become joyfully obedient 
to the Lord Jesus as Redeemer and King. Can you make a New Year's resolution and say, you know, on December 31st, I was just a self-centered sinner who only cared about myself. But on January 1st, I'm going to be joyfully obeying the gospel and having faith. How long do you think that resolution's gonna work? Can you go for an eight-week course on that? Can you, there's nothing you can do. But the good news, again, is that it is God who changes our hearts. It is God who gives us the new hearts that want to obey him and believe him. It comes from him. I had a relative, and she had almost no energy to do anything because she had a heart problem and lung problems. And she was waiting for a heart and lung transplant. Not easy. She was on that list for a few years. And finally, in God's mercy, she received a new heart and new lungs. And what happened? She had energy to live. Is it because she determined she would? No. It's because she received a new heart and new lungs. My friends, that's what we need from the Lord Jesus Christ. We need a new heart and new lungs, so to speak, from his spirit to regenerate us, that we would be born again. And here's the good news. The gospel isn't just a doctrine. The gospel gives us power so that we want to obey the Lord in faith. I remember becoming a believer my senior year of high school, and all of a sudden I took the old Bible I had. I was starting to read three hours every night. You couldn't stop me. Uh, God changed me. It wasn't because I made that change, but God worked that change in us. And the same is available to all today. Some of you say, well, I've been a Christian for 50 years, but perhaps we need a new heart, a new lungs, and so in a sense of just saying, Lord, renew me, revive me. Uh, I have been clogged up, and I need your renewal in me. Hallelujah. The fourth demonstration of God's power is that the gospel has the power to give us our true identity. The gospel has the power to give us our true identity. Verses 6 and 7. And again, imagine we're in that black blackout, no power. And imagine it's at night, and you're in a building. There's no lights. You can hear sounds, but you, and people are walking by you, and you don't even know who they are. You can't identify them because you're in total darkness. In fact, you don't even know what your own face looks like. Are there smudges? Or did something happen when the power went out? You, you can't even look in the mirror. And that's how it is today. There are so many people living in spiritual darkness, and they're desperately trying to find their identity. Some are trying to find their identity in a different gender. Some are trying to find it in a different life partner. And others are trying to find their identity in some virtual fantasy world. But my friends, the good news of Christ is the only thing that can liberate us from these foolish, dead-end pursuits. Only the gospel can allow us to flourish as the kings and the queens that God created Adam and Eve to be in the garden. He says, I know your true identity. I've given you your DNA. I created it for you. You're made in my image. You are special. Yes, that image has been marred by the fall, by sin, 
but I have come to redeem you and renew that image in you. Now, the people of Rome that Paul wrote to were similar to us. They had their identity questions. Some thought their identity was wrapped up in being Jewish. Others thought their identity revolved around their wealth, their good looks, or their status. But Paul writes them in verses 6 and 7 and says, As you have believed the good news, God has given you your true identity so that you would flourish in that. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says, your call to belong to Jesus Christ. That's a question. Who, Who do I belong to? You know, adopted children sometimes have that kind of question. Who do I belong to? Or maybe if you're living in a different culture, it says, you belong to God. You belong to Christ. It says, you are loved by God. Verse 7, you are loved by God. Don't, isn't there a longing in our hearts that we want someone to love us? And God says, I love you. Lynn and I love telling our grandkids, I love you. I love you. We even tell them in Polish, kocham cię. And they say, kocham cię. We, we long to be loved and to love people. And God says, I love you. That's who your identity is. He says, you are called to be saints or holy ones. Who? Me? <laughs> called to be a saint? You know, the saints, those are the guys who lived long ago and they got the halos. No. God says, I've made you to be holy as I am holy. I've given you a status to be saints in my presence. That's your identity. And he says in verse, the end of verse 7, you can experience grace and peace that can only come from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Trinity, that's our identity. Belonging to God, loved by God, holy, and given his peace and his grace. No matter what you see in the mirror, no matter what you feel. And therefore, if that was their identity, the Roman Christians, in Christ, that's your identity as well. And so there's good news here. What it means is that you don't have to struggle to find your identity. Because God tells you who you are and gives you the power to live that in the gospel. Young people, you don't need to discover your gender identity. God has already a perfect plan for you and your identity in who he's made you. Men may be tempted with midlife crisis. You don't need a red convertible and a partner half your age. Because in the gospel, God makes you to be the man that you were meant to be, created to be, and redeemed to be. All the manhood and masculinity you need is found in the gospel in Jesus Christ. Don't look somewhere else. And those who might be lonely, you don't have to live in a fantasy world, whether it's virtual or otherwise, because the gospel leads you to your true spiritual family right here, and Trinity is part of it. The gospel has the power to give you your true identity. And fifth, the fifth demonstration is that the gospel has the power to build up the church and to impact all the nations. The gospel has the power to build up the church and to impact 
all the nations, verse 5, as well as verses 8 through 15. Notice in this section Paul's zeal for the gospel and for the church. He prays, he says, I'm praying for you all the time. I'm, I'm longing to see you at Rome. Why? So that I can impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you so that we can be mutually encouraged by one another. Was that your thought this morning as you came to church? I just can't wait to get to Trinity so I can impart a spiritual gift during the halftime or afterwards. During the week, do you take the church directory and are you praying for one another? Lord, help them to use their spiritual gift. Help me when I talk to them to use the gift you've given me to encourage and build up. You see, the gospel has the power to stir us up to love and good works. The gospel comes not just to save us, not just to transform us, those things are great, but the gospel is at work here and at community groups and the women's Bible study and the yams and the Trinity youth. The gospel is at work. Believe it, expect it, pray for it, look for God working in the midst here. And notice that Paul is eager to preach the gospel to them in verse 15. He says, I'm eager to preach the gospel. And say, wait a minute. They were already believers. Why did they need the gospel preached to them if they were already Christians? Well, Paul doesn't have an on-off switch. Oh, I'm with non-Christians. Gospel is on. I'm with believers. Gospel is off. No. Many of you have heard the statement, Preach the gospel to yourself every morning, right? Preach the gospel to yourself. Some of us have gospel amnesia. We forget what God has done. We forget the power of God at work. And we think the gospel is only for getting saved the first time. But Paul says, no, we need the gospel all the time. The powerful good news of the Lord was the center of his life, of his conversation, of his desire, no matter who he was with. Let me ask you, is it the center of your life, the good news of the gospel of Jesus, whether you're with believers or whether with people who don't know Jesus Christ? Have you ever come, when you're walking through a forest perhaps, upon a pond that's completely still and I know as a boy, there's one thing you can't resist doing. You look around for a rock, right? And you take that rock and you chuck it as far as you can into the pond. Bloop! And then what happens? You watch the ripples go all the way. And if it's a still day without any wind, those ripples just keep going to the end of the pond. And you do it again. And that's what Paul is saying here about the gospel. He goes... You saints at Rome, the gospel has gone out from you with a ripple effect to the ends of the earth. Through people who visited Rome and then left, through your visits to other places, people are hearing of the power of the gospel in this church at Rome, and it has a ripple effect to the ends of the earth. Is that your understanding and your view at Trinity? Do you believe that the gospel has the power to impact the nations of the world through you individually, through your family, through your community group, through this church as it meets on a Sunday? 
Do you believe that the gospel can have a ripple effect no matter what language, ethnic, or political or religious barriers exist? I do, and it's exciting. My question is, are we praying that way? Are we praying, Lord, break through. Break through to the unreached. Break through to the resistant. Break through to those in Washington and Harrisburg who we're praying for and we're asking, Lord, grab their hearts and their minds. Do we wanna see Trinity Church have a gospel ripple effect among the peoples of the world? Let's believe that. Let's pray that way. And let's act that way. I've mentioned in previous weeks that the nations have come here. Some of you, there are people from different language groups and nations on your block. Or they're at Costco or they're at Giant or whatever. Reach out, befriend these people, and see the ripple effect of the gospel go out. Well, those are five demonstrations of the gospel, its power. Let's look then at the second major one. We'll be briefer here, but this is extremely important. It's God's good news has the power to credit us with Christ's righteousness, verses 16 and 17. God's good news has the power to credit us, to account to us the righteousness of Christ. How many of you were Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts growing up? Anybody? Okay, a few. I think I made it to first class, and I got a few merit badges. And you're probably familiar that in scouting, once you get to a certain level, you can earn merit badges for things like first aid and citizenship and so forth. If you get 21 of them, you can become an Eagle Scout with other projects and so forth. And I think there's about 140 merit badges that you can earn. And there's over 500 guys who have earned all 140 merit badges. And if you get these merit badges, as the picture there is, you can wear them on a sash across your chest. Hello, look at my merit badges. Look how many I have. Oh, I have more than you. Let me let you in on a secret. Every one of us is obsessed with earning merit badges of righteousness. Every person is obsessed with earning merit badges of righteousness. You say, no, that's not me. Well, let's just take a look. Let's think about it, because I know that's where my heart is inclined. What are those merit badges? Well, they could be good works that you do because you want credit, because you want people to think well of you. They could be and these are, just, these are not bad things, but the question is, what is motivating you to do them? You could be a climate change activist. You could throw yourself 100% into it. Why? Because you're trying to earn a merit badge in the eyes of the world. You could, all right? Or it could be you throw yourself into supporting political conservative candidates or progressive candidates, and you think, we got to do this. We're going to save the world, and why isn't everybody else doing it like I am? Or let's get more where most of us are. How about the merit badge of seeking to raise successful children? Right. Should we, do we want to raise children who love and know God? Yes, but it can become a merit badge. Look how my kids turned out, right? 
Ah, they're going to Harvard and Yale. Oh, they, this, right? They play five sports and straight A's and so forth. My son is an honor student at whatever. And it can become earning a merit badge. I think we all try to earn merit. Why? So we feel good about ourselves? So we can secretly boast in our own heart to others? So we feel justified before God? How about you? Would you say that among the hidden motives of your heart, maybe earning merit badges of righteousness is part of what, why you do what you do? I think it is for me, and I need to challenge my own heart like that. But listen to what Paul declares in verse 16 and 17. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Picture with me a court of law. Have you been in a courtroom lately? And up the front, the judge is God himself, the supreme ruler of the universe. And you come into that court as the guilty, the accused, and you have been accused of committing the worst possible crimes that require the death penalty. And you are powerless to save or defend yourself before this holy and righteous God who knows everything. You cannot make up anything. You can't have any excuses. He knows your heart. He knows your actions. He knows everything that went on. But we still try to defend ourselves and excuse ourselves. And so what do we do? We show God our flimsy merit badges. Look, God, I sacrificed to raise my family. Oh, look at this one, Lord. I volunteered at church even when no one saw me or thanked me. Uh, how about this one, Lord? I met with you every day and read the Bible through every year. Doesn't that count for something? Or, Lord, uh, look at this merit badge. I served the homeless and the poor. Uh, Lord, I didn't have addictions and those really bad sins like everyone else. Can you imagine the foolishness of trying to present your merit badges in front of the holy God when you know you are guilty and deserving of punishment. Did we think that these merit badges would somehow offset our guilt before the holy God? Listen to what the prophet Isaiah does in a searing indictment against such thinking in Isaiah chapter 64, verses 5 and 6. The next slide. You know this one. He says, We have all become like one unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. God says, Our best attempt, even if we had 140 merit badges, are polluted garments in God's sight. We have nothing to stand before him. But now comes this incredible, almost too good to be true news. It's the gospel. For God, the holy and righteous judge, declares that Jesus, his beloved son, has, number one, taken the guilt and punishment that we deserve away, and he's put it on his son at the cross. 
And instead, he has credited our spiritual account with Jesus' perfect righteousness. He says, I take all of your negative sins and I put them on Jesus at the cross and I take Jesus' perfect righteousness, that he lived a perfect life and that he died for you, his atoning grace, and I put that into your account. Let me conclude by relating how Romans 1.17 not only rescued and transformed one historic figure, but how his understanding of this verse unleashed a tsunami wave of gospel power. You're mostly familiar with Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a German monk, a German Catholic monk in 1517, and he was teaching the Book of Romans at the University of Wittenberg. And Luther was trying to find peace with God. Luther had a thousand merit badges. I mean, you know, this guy was just trying to get his righteous standing before God. And so we know the story. He would go to his confessor every day, and he would confess his sins for two hours, four hours. Someday he'd be with his confessor for six hours, telling him his sins and repenting. He wanted to have a right standing before God, but he couldn't find that peace, even when he did everything he was supposed to do. But he's teaching Romans, and he looks at Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith. That's a quote from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. The just shall live by faith. And one day, the Holy Spirit worked in Luther, and the lights came on for him. And he began to understand that what Paul was speaking of here was a righteousness not that he could work for like a merit badge, but a righteousness that was alien, that was outside of himself, that God in his grace and mercy credited to Luther's account. You see, up till then, he had understood that God made sinners into righteous people by helping them to become a little more holy by praying and going to church and fasting and doing good works. And if you got sort of holy and righteous enough with those things, then it sort of offset the negative things and you hoped you would go to heaven. That's how almost every religion works outside of Christianity. But Luther realized that the Greek word for righteousness in verse 17 didn't mean to make you righteous, but it meant that God regards you. God accounts you as righteousness. Again, just to think through in accounting terms, imagine you've had a rough time and you look at, you go to your accountant and say, what's the bottom line? And he says, well, you're in the hole, you're in the red, half a million dollars. You've run up your credit cards, your lines of credit. You, you've just made so many bad decisions. Things have happened. You are in debt, $500,000. Wow, what am I going to do? He says, well, wait, wait. I just saw something on the computer. Someone has credited your account with a million dollars. And now you're 500000 in the black. You're good. Did you work for that million? Did you earn it? 
Did you beg for it? No. Someone in their mercy and grace credited your account with a million dollars. And that's a picture, brothers and sisters, of what Jesus Christ does in the gospel. He credits our account, which is in the negative, in the red before God. And he says, I give you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. And Luther said, when I discovered this, I was born again of the Holy Spirit. And he says, and the doors of paradise swung open and I walked through. Hallelujah. What joy. Does it mean our problems are over? No. But we desperately want a right standing with God. We, that's why we're trying to earn merit badges, because we think we need to do it on our own. And God tells us all the merit you need has been already earned by my son Jesus on the cross. And so, my friends, are you still seeking to establish your own righteousness by earning your own merit badges? Or are you fully trusting that Jesus Christ has taken your guilt, he's taken your shame, he's taken the penalty for your sin, and he has clothed you, doesn't matter what you're wearing right now, picture yourself robed in the royal, beautiful robes of righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's how the Father sees you. And that's how he gives you a new identity. And that's how he gives you grace and peace, and you can walk out of here and say, hallelujah. Have you, like Luther, been born again of the Holy Spirit so that indeed the doors of paradise would swing wide open for you? I invite you to rest, to collapse upon the righteousness of Christ. So in closing, God's good news has the power to rescue and transform sinners, and God's good news has the power to credit us with Christ's righteousness. Amen.